the largest selfie of all time. 6,500 rabbis post for the annual Kinnis photo. And the one guy out there measuring their beards. I have all the fun stuff from the Kinnis Hashluchim from the official TikToker rabbi. It's winter, and that means it's time to start thinking about your garden. Ohuva is here from Homegrown Kosher, and we're going to talk about tomatoes, potatoes, and sourdough bread. And finally, Libs of TikTok and the religious woman behind one of the most controversial Twitter accounts, aside from Donald Trump. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your extremely talented and humble host, Hanalah Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. It is a beautiful day, and I am here ready to make your day a little more beautiful. Did you guys see the picture from the Kinnis HaShluchim? I mean, if that is not beautiful, I don't know what is. If you didn't, well, every single year, a massive photograph is taken from the sky, a 360, as well as just a massive panoramic photo of all the rabbis that come from around the world for the International Conference of Chabad Lubavitch Emissaries, the Kinnis HaShluchim. And that photograph has been making its rounds as people try to identify the rabbi from their respective town. I just have to tell you that I am literally related to 75% of the people in this picture. I kid you not. My uncles, my high school principal, uh, brother-in-laws. I mean, all of these people are my cousins. (laughs) These are my people. And if you zoom in, it is very, very clear Who's who in the zoo? I mean, this is not a blurry picture at all. It is completely HD. And if you're following all these rabbis on Instagram or on Twitter or TikTok, wherever they are spreading the light of Judaism, you can see their spot in the crowd. And it is quite a riot. There are a lot of beards here. Like this group has the most beards in one spot. Definitely. Um, And as far as who has the longest beard, well, we're going to leave that to the rabbi of TikTok, who's going to be here with us shortly to tell us about his experience at the Kinnasash Luchim. He's quite a character, and I appreciated his sense of humor as he walked around Crown Heights with a measuring tape. Rabbi Avram Rappaport, the TikToker rabbi, trying to figure out who, in fact, had the longest beard at the Kinnas. Fascinating stuff, my friends. Okay, now, if you are a Chabad rabbi, you know that the only way to get people to do good things and to turn them on to Judaism is to embrace them with love and to accept them for the way they are and to not publicly shame them or call them out for their bad behavior because nobody comes closer to God through shame. Now, the next segment is definitely whistle-worthy, so I'm going to add that little whistle here so you know that if you have children in the room, it is time to send them to take a shower, make their beds, cut their nails, or mow the lawn, if you have a lawn, and I hope you do, because we have a segment about gardening coming up. Now, I am working on getting Ms. Chayarajchik on the show to defend her TikTok account and her Twitter account that is currently under attack by the From community. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't you worry. I'm going to break it down for you in a way that you absolutely understand so that you too can have an opinion on something that everybody seems to be completely opinionated about. (laughs) My opinion? Well, I'm not going to tell you my opinion because that is my prerogative as podcast host. I'm just going to share other people's opinions and let you figure out the rest for yourselves. Okay, so back in March, a Twitter account called Libs of TikTok posted a video of a teacher teaching children in Kentucky, 
And she called this teacher a predator. Why? Because she was teaching something inappropriate to the students that she felt was important for their education. Use your imagination. The next night, Laura Ingram, a Fox News reporter, shares this particular video with a story titled, When did our public schools, any schools, become what are essentially grooming centers for gender identity radicals? Now, for many long months, the Libs of TikTok account was run anonymously, and it just had a repost, a steady stream of TikTok videos from social media posts that other people posted, primarily from the food coloring community. And I have to admit, a lot of these people are a little off their rockers. I'm not going to lie. The stuff is bizarre and strange and concerning and eyebrow-raising, and at times nauseating. So she's sharing these videos. And what happens is the right wing media is going to her account and taking these videos and using them as part of their campaign against liberalism and progressivism and saying, you see, see all these Michigan, this is the problem with America. In the meantime, this account is just growing and growing. There are podcast hosts all over the country dipping into this account for resources for their show. Glenn Greenwald, Megan McCain, Joe Rogan, they all mentioned Libs of TikTok on their platforms and the account grew and grew and grew uh, until it had 1.8 million Twitter followers. And it didn't take long before Chai Reichik, the host of this account, to be invited onto Tucker Carlson's show, where she appeared blurred out, not because from women have faces, but because she wanted to protect her identity. And rightfully so, because somebody who creates such inflammatory content, well, they are on the receiving end of a lot of death threats and hate. Now, I don't know who this Chayarajik is. I do know, however, that she's very opinionated. She railed against um, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, calling for him to resign. She was at the November 6th insurrection event, believe it or not, and she shared detail by detail of how it was, a play-by-play while she was on the ground in Washington, while the violence broke out at the Capitol. She also supports Governor DeSantis. Clearly, she's conservative on the on the right, or on the far right, as most agree. Um, and she is a proud Orthodox Jew who lives in Brooklyn and works primarily in real estate. How do we know this? Well, despite having taken some measures to obscure her identity in the beginning, she registered the domain name of libsoftiktok.us, a website, last October, using her full name, cell phone number, and linked it to her real estate salesperson contact information. And that's how she was doxxed. And doxxed means exposed. It means when your personal information is put on the internet, usually uh, with malicious intent. So, hi, Reichik is exposed, and another Chayarajik, who is just a cute girl from California, ends up in the mix of this because people think it's her, and she has to say it's not her, because nobody wants to be the Chayarajik that is sharing all these things on Twitter and on TikTok, because apparently everybody hates her. Now, Chayarajik has been quoted as saying, I don't do this for money or fame. She told this to New York Post anonymously when she was interviewed in February. Um, She says... Again, quote, I'm not some politician or blue check journalist. I feel like there are so many small stories that are so important that aren't getting out there. That's what I am here for. She believes that she is exposing some very bad, unsavory behavior that's going on all across America. And she's giving a voice and a platform to concerned parents and citizens here in America who are appalled by the food coloring situation. And you guys know what I'm talking about. 
the obsession with some in the rainbow community to constantly expose children to men in dresses who are showing up at their schools and to their birthday parties and to their Barnes and Nobles book reads. And this is a problem and it's horrifying. And although the numbers are not quite what you might suspect, it's still enough that Ms. Reitschick has enough content to share regularly to her millions and millions of followers. She already has a YouTube account, 65,000 followers on Instagram, and it's just it just keeps growing. But as it grows, so does the hate and so do the threats. Now, this weekend, as you might know, there was a horrible shooting, a rampage at a Colorado Springs nightclub. And five people from the rainbow community were murdered in cold blood just for being who they were. Now, you have to understand that whenever these things happen, there is a fallout. And most of this fallout takes place online where people are pointing fingers and wondering what triggered somebody to go into a club where there are people who are different from them and just shoot them for for no reason, just to take their lives because that particular person didn't support their lifestyles. And yes, there were people on social media blaming Chaya Rajik for causing this massacre, literally blaming her by saying, because of the things that you share on your account, and she shares this stuff regularly, just of yesterday she shared about an organization in Colorado that teaches kids how to be queens and not the kind of queens from Disney World or from the Megillah. And people are blaming her for the actual bloodshed that is taking place in the rainbow community because of the public shaming of them that's taking place on social media. Now, is it a good thing that America is becoming progressively more colorful? No. Is this going to accomplish anything helpful? It's hard to say. Are good things coming out of it? Possibly there's teachers who have been fired, and it's important to draw attention to behavior that's inappropriate, especially when children are involved. So there is something positive about exposing this perverse behavior and bringing this sickness to light. On the other hand, some of it's truly a sickness. There are truly people, unfortunately, that are not well, and they express it in all different kinds of ways. And when they get on social media with their blue hair and their nose rings and they're sobbing about whatever their issues are, whatever genders or whatever pronouns they want to be called that day, it's sad. And to put them out in a public way in front of hundreds of millions of people to mock them and to call them names and to possibly fire them from their jobs and so on. I mean, is that really accomplishing anything? From what I understand, the rainbow community has a high rate of suicide. Do do we want to be a part of that? Do you want to tweet something out that causes somebody to take their life? That's a really big responsibility, especially now that everybody knows that this account is run by a Jewish girl, an Orthodox Jewish girl, no less. Now you can say this is a massive Chalal Hashem. I mean, that that's absolutely fair at this point. Uh, some of the comments I received when I engaged in this conversation on Twitter were that it's an absolute shanda, a shanda to treat humans this awfully on such a huge platform. It goes against the core tenets of our religion. Other people feel it's in invaluable investigative work and that this is journalism and that people who put their content on social media, well, they're looking for publicity and they're looking to be exposed and they're just getting more of it and it's solving more problems than it's causing. Obviously, it is not so black and white and there are going to be a lot of opinions on this. I reached out to Chaya Rechik herself and I said, listen, 
come on my show. And she said, get back to me in December. And I said, how's December 1st? <laughs> so hopefully I will have her here on the Weekly Squeeze and I'll be able to have a conversation with her and get down to the heart of the matter and try to figure out what it is that motivates her to keep posting these videos despite the fact that she is presently living a life where people want her gone. There are people who want her to not exist anymore. And that is a very scary reality, especially at a time where people like Ben Shapiro walk around with false security and anti-Semitism is at an all-time high, which, by the way, Kanye West is completely laughing about. He was reinstated on Twitter and on Instagram after being um, temporarily disabled after his anti-Semitic tweets. And the first tweet, besides for testing, testing, one, two, three, was Shalom with a smiley face. I kid you not, Kanye West came back onto Instagram after two weeks of blissful silence, and he wrote, Shalom, with a smiley face. Make of it what you will. This week's episode has been brought to you by the American Friends of Mayer Panim, a charity that you need to know about. Are you feeling bad that you're currently not in the land of Israel? Well, you can be with a small donation to an incredible organization that works here in the land of Israel to feed the hungry, support teens at risk, and uplift Holocaust survivors with special programs that ensure that all their needs are taken care of as they get older. I love this. They create fun and social environments for elderly survivors, and that is such a beautiful initiative. They have restaurant-style soup kitchens, meals on wheels, meals for children, neighborhood youth centers, Holocaust Survivor Day centers. I mean, the list goes on and on. Well, unfortunately, the money doesn't. So I need you all to click on my show note links. I have a link there so you can donate just a little bit, $18, $36, so that Mayor Panim could continue to do their incredible work. And I know this firsthand because I got on the phone with the people involved and asked them all the specifics, and I was just blown away and the most important thing for you to know is that they cannot do this alone so connect to your fellow brothers and sisters here in the land of israel go to my show notes click on the link donate 18 dollars. you can use paypal so many easy ways to make this happen help pay it forward for israel's impoverished and let them know that i sent you okay before we get to our next segment with rabbi raps i just want to read you a beautiful poem slash essay that I came across written by Roland Marx. She is a passionate advocate for Israel, uh, lives here in the Holy Land. She is involved in Wizzo and other Israel advocacy, and she shares her thoughts on her blog. And I came across this essay and I thought it was so lovely. I would just love to read it to you. It's titled, I am a Jew. I am a Jew. I am the daughter of Israel. I am the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, and Leah. I am the descendant of the great kings David, Solomon, and Saul. I am the descendant of the wise judges, the esteemed prophets. I am Yael, the warrior. I hope by my actions to live up to Yael, the namesake of the heroine whose Hebrew name I bear. My language is Hebrew. I may get my grammar wrong, but it is the language of my soul. My soul and spirit belong to the land and now the state of Israel. I am created from this land. I am its fruits. I am its covenant. I am its promise. I am the daughter of Zion, of Jerusalem. I am bound by the chain of generations to the great sages, the learned rabbis, the Nobel Prize winners. I am the 12 tribes and the one tribe. I carry the dreams of the scattered and the exiled because I am home. I carry the hopes and the dreams of those who perished in inquisitions, in pogroms, in the Holocaust. 
I am the living dream of those who wandered the desert, marched through hostile lands to return to Zion. I am a modern liberation movement. I determine my future. I have Jerusalem in my bones. Today, I am hunted. I am vilified and I am abused. But I am not going anywhere, for what was in my ancestors is in me. I too will survive. I too will be proud. I too will shout my name loud. The bitter words may wound me, but will not defeat me. The violence may cut me, but will not break me. I stand strong. I stand proud. I will wear the symbols of my faith and identify with pride and strength. I will pursue peace with all my might, but defend myself with all I am. I am a Jew. All right, I mentioned a few episodes ago that Lizzie Savetsky... Instagram influencer extraordinaire was going to be on Real Housewives of New York in 2023 with an all new cast, the most diverse cast yet. Well, they're going to be missing one Jewess because she has officially quit. And lo and behold, the reason, well, it's anti-Semitism. She shared a post where she wrote, as a proud Orthodox Jewish woman, I thought that participating in this series would be a great chance to represent people like me and share my experience. There's not that many people like you, Lizzie, but still. <laughs> Yet, from the time of my announcement in the cast, I was on the receiving end of a torrent of anti-Semitic attacks. Now, mind you, she has little children, so this is concerning. As this continues, I realized that this path was no longer right for me and my family, and she basically quit her job. I reached out to her. She said she is not allowed to speak about it yet. She's under contract, so we are going to wait and sit tight until we can get her on the show and hear about what actually took place. Because on the one hand, I suspected that being on the show would be problematic for the Jewish people because we're in a situation where, like, whatever we do, it's not going to be good. So I'm kind of relieved. On the other hand, it is disappointing because if this is something that she wanted and she literally couldn't do it because of anti-Semitism, that is very disheartening. As far as Alexa from the Netflix special, Love is Blind, well, she is happily married to her cowboy, her non-Jewish cowboy, and last I checked, they have a Christmas tree and Hanukkah decorations in their house. So that's your Love is Blind update. I don't know. I'm just a little obsessed with her and her marriage because it's it looks so la-di-da. And she's adorable in her Christmas pajamas with their dogs in front of their tree but I keep thinking about her grandfather, like how pathetic he was attempting to remind his new Gentile grandson-in-law that his granddaughter and her children will always be Jewish. The good news is that there is now a website, a new website called jewishstatus.org, where you can verify your Jewish status or the guy in the pod's Jewish status. So you can now go on a Netflix show and meet some random dude and put him through this process for $280 where he fills in all the information about his background and he will get a certificate that lets him know that he has Yichus, jewishstatus.org. Our rabbinic council will diligently review your application to ensure the status of your Jewish identity. Then they contact you for an interview and they let you know if your match is actually made in heaven or made on Netflix. That's right. All right. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that this weekend there was a massive convention in Crown Heights for over 6,500 Chabad Lubavitch rabbis that came from all over the world for a weekend of inspiration and joy and happiness and beard measuring. I will explain, or rather, Avraham Rappaport will explain. He is Rabbi Raps on social media. 
a Jersey Shore rabbi, filmmaker, motivational speaker, and official TikToker, a rabbi, on social media. Here we go. Rabbi Raps, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here on a moment's notice. You are coming off a very exuberant weekend. And although some of my followers, my listeners, have been in Crown Heights or from Crown Heights or Lubavitch, many are not and have no idea what this whole hullabaloo is about the Kinosash Lochim, where thousands and thousands of rabbis from around the world come into Crown Heights for a weekend of, you'll, you'll explain it in more detail, but festivity and inspiration and celebration and shopping. They come with their wives' lists. <laughs> and you were right. there on the ground with your tape measure, um, having <laughs> the full experience. So tell me a little bit about how it was. I'll give you the floor, and I'll only interrupt once in a while. Well, thank you for having me on your program. Uh, yes, got, coming off a very inspiring weekend of the Kinnas HaShlochem. The Kinnas HaShlochem is the international gathering of Chabad rabbis from around the world. Uh, there's over 5,000 of us, and uh, it's it's a time for the Shlochem to um, uh, reconnect to their mission, to each other, to refresh, to learn new tactics or uh, join classes and programs, and uh, it's a very enjoyable, uh, very inspiring five days. You have rabbis coming from all around the world. Some of them, or most of them, are in touch throughout the year online because it is a network of people working together with the same objective. Right. However, because their schedules are so loaded, most of these rabbis can't afford a five-day break or trip away from their respective communities to connect with their brothers who you know, know them well, relate to them well, and support them in times of need. So this is a very meaningful experience for every single person there. Yes. I mean, the work of a shleach is, you know, in human terms, very difficult because you're taking people that really need to thrive in a, from in a religious community. You know, you need basic resources. You need school for your kids. You need food. And the shluchim, inspired by the Rebbe's encouragement, uh, are living across the globe in communities with very little Jewish infrastructure. Now, over the years, the shluchim have built up their their local communities. But to to be an Orthodox Jew and to live uh, in these communities is spiritual suicide. Um, obviously, the shluchim have a higher power. They're inspired by the Rebbe. And instead of the, the areas changing them, they're changing the areas. But it's very difficult. And coming together uh, for this kinnis is something that gives everyone, uh, refreshes their focus and their strength and really allows us to go back out and, and do our work. Well, I could confirm everything you're saying because I've had um, a number of opportunities to be by shluchim over the career where when I sang and traveled. And some shluchim, sure, they might live comfortably and it might seem on the surface like they're not ma- making any sacrifice, but every single shliach I have been by is making a number of sacrifices so that they can commit their lives to reaching out and bringing Jewish people closer um, into the fold. But tell me a little bit about what the atmosphere is like on the ground. It's been two years, being that COVID was in the middle. So was there a certain like, oh my goodness, like three years since we last saw each other? Was there that extra energy? Uh, there definitely was. Uh, it was a li- it was a little lighter last year and definitely the year before. So just seeing each other 
Um, it, it's a beautiful sight. You see two shluchim that were in yeshiva together, you know, 10, 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago, and they, they meet on the street and they embrace. And, uh, you know, you see that and, and it, it's so, it's beautiful and it's inspiring. And, and they're both doing the same kind of work in different corners of the globe. And uh, there's a camaraderie, there's a brotherhood um, that, that you just can't get over a Zoom call, you know? So what do people think of you who have found your calling? I don't want to say your calling, but you have definitely found a niche for yourself on social media where you share all kinds of hilarious stuff, including running around Crown Heights with a tape measure. Was that a shtick, a shtick you came up with just to, just for social media? <laughs> okay, well, let's back up. I became, I guess you could call it a, a Jewish influencer or a content creator by accident. Um, COVID hit. And the shul closed down and we weren't able to see people. And I felt, you know, we, our community needs each other. And we started doing more uh, video and I started creating on Facebook. Someone suggested this thing called Instagram, uh, TikTok. Um, I started playing with it. And I guess by accident, I figured out that, you know, you could give, put a lot of energy and effort into giving a class for you know, 10, 20, 30 people, but the same effort, if you learn the algorithm and you learn the different apps that are out there, it's possible to reach uh, hundreds, thousands, and in some cases, millions of people. Well, the whole world is an algorithm. One of the things I talked to Shluchim about is that this is the new way to communicate. Uh, We need to learn how to use social media to communicate with our people. Uh, this is the, just like the internet boom in the 90s. People were like, what is that? Do I really need this? Um, if we, This is the new way of communicating, especially with young people. I'm, I speak to Shluchim who are on campus and tell them that when they're online, they're suddenly going to be hearing from people that they never even thought are listening. And so that's how I fell into uh, social media. Now, here's the deal. If you just share to- Torah, it's nice. Yeah. But, it's but nice, but it's not, yeah, you're not going <laughs> to stick around for long or your followers are not going to stick around for long. You're not going to retain an audience. Every rabbi knows going all the way back to the Tanayim, the Amarayim, that you start with a joke, right? And and that's what my uh, platform tries to do. There's fun things. There's funny things. There is entertaining aspects, but there's also real lessons. And I wanted to bring out the, uh, you know, cover the Kinnis. And, uh, you know, I thought it's probably important for us to know who does have the longest beard at the Kinnis. And, and we did find the answer. It's, it's Rabbi Adi Goodman. I, that's the longest beard. He's in Florida. Uh, I think we, we, we Are you kidding me? Six inches. The, one second. He's a basketball player? Uh, that's his brother. That's Tommy. wild. I thought you were going to yeah. say some Rav from, you know, Russia somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah. That is good stuff. So what other what other moments were really just like, pinch me, this is so amazing, or just unique in a way that none of us listening will experience unless you, Rabbi Rapp, share with us a little bit about it? Well, you know, doing these interviews with the shluchim really bring out a beautiful side. I mean, the shluchim are really larger than life individuals. And when, by the way, when I say shluchim, I mean shluchim and shluchais, and in some ways more shluchais, but we're talking about the shluchim right now. So in particular... But Which, by the way, I'm related to half of them. 
I am related <laughs> to literally half of them. Okay, so I know. Go on. So you know firsthand, right? Yes. So, I mean, when I say larger-than-life individuals, these are people that in their communities are leaders. I mean, they're, they're meeting with their police and their mayors to talk about safety and, and community, you know, community-wide things, not only Jewish community. They're raising hundreds and some of them millions, hundreds of thousands and some of them millions of dollars. They're, they're, they're at the forefront of Jewish continuity. These are, these are powerful individuals. But these are the individuals that with everything they're doing, they get a call about a Jew whose spouse died and they go running over with, you know, chicken soup or a challah before Shabbos. I mean, that's the contrast. And you see that when you walk over to this very distinguished rabbi with the taint measure and you say, you know, I'm going to measure your beard. And instead of running away, they laugh with you. And they let you yeah, do it. Yeah, they've seen it all. They've heard it all. Because, <laughs> listen, the, the core of Lubavitch is the person themselves. That's the focus. The Rebbe always focused in on the person, on the value that each individual has. And that's something that runs across the way the Chabad rabbis treat their community and treat the universe. So I'm glad that you got to have that positive experience. I imagine that if you went to the conference in Lakewood, maybe they'd be a little bit more uncomfortable to unroll their beards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how many have beards, but um, I have to be—I have to say nice things about Lakewood. I'm—I'm I'm a uh, you know I went to the Lakewood Cheder as a kid. My kids go to Lakewood schools. There's a lot of great, wonderful things in the community. Different style, different flavor. Um, but uh, you know, I tell people I'm a Lakewood Hater success story. I'm a shliach in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely amazing to see people who are really influential and very much powerful and just humble, just human. And 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 what I try to do in my interviews is bring out that human side. One of the interesting things I did is I asked my followers, uh, you know, I'm going to be with five thousand rabbis. You can ask any question. I'll walk over to a rabbi randomly in the street. And I really did this. I didn't prep anyone. And I just asked him a question. And, you know, question, can you prove God exists? Uh, questions, uh, heaven and hell, uh, you know, just regular Jewish questions. And the answers, every single one of them I published, there was not one person who answered that wasn't just, didn't do an awesome job. You have So what does so that say? Talent. What does that say for, yeah, well, you're saying there's so much talent. And mm -hmm. also... Regarding Lakewood and Lubavitch, at the end of the day, when you live a life that's infused with Tyron, that's really the most important thing for you. You are going to, you're you're going to be a well-rounded, healthy individual. Yeah, definitely, definitely. There's a there's a a beautiful human side to the shluchim as well, and that's just being approachable, being able to answer some of you know some of the questions are a little off. Like someone was asking. Uh, can vampires be Jewish? And I had a shliach literally address that, you know, talking about blood. I mean, just <laughs> down to earth, cool, relatable, nice, kind, humble human beings. And it was a lot of fun. And the shluchim are really amazing. Well, the picture is amazing. I zoomed in to see who I recognize. Thankfully, I didn't see Kanye West anywhere to be found in the crowd. <laughs> so that's a good thing. <laughs> was anti-Semitism part of the conversation this weekend? Did you feel like... There was something in the air. You know what? Um, in it is a big concern and it is a big problem. But at the goodness, there's a, really a positive energy. There's an energy, you know, and and we're not like. I don't think that's weighing anyone down. Okay, that's a good thing. That's yeah. a good thing. Listen, at the end of the day, everybody lives with. Um, true belief that Hashem runs the world and they have the bracha of the Lubavitcher Rebbe and all they do. 
and that only good can come from the Jewish people when we put ourselves out there in a positive way. So I guess they're feeling that in their respective communities. At the end of the day, I just want to say, though, that all of these rabbis are, well, many of them are living by the seat of their pants. So if you feel much obliged, reach out to your local Chabad rabbi, make a donation, ask how you could help. Um, I'm sure they would appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, Last question for you. Yeah, sure. Are you re- are you related to Michael Rappaport? <laughs> We're trying to figure. What's the that deal? Right <laughs> trying to now. figure it out. I don't know if yeah. it's such a good thing. I don't know if it's such a good thing. <laughs> uh, it could be, but you know, he's a lot. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, uh, everything aligns politically, or or um, you know, the fundamentally. <laughs> but but he definitely has a, a personality. He's a funny guy. He's a loud guy. I think if we clean him up a little bit, he'd be an awesome shliach. So I'm trying to reach out to him. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I I saw that he um, shared some of my videos on his platform. He has like between Instagram and TikTok over six million followers. And That's then right. I was, you know, I went to him to try to message him on TikTok, and it turns out that it says follow back. So he's following me. So maybe I could get through to him somehow, and uh, maybe we'll have another shliach. You never know. Stay tuned. That's pretty awesome. Well, good for you. Keep using your platform for good things. Send regards to your wife, a uh, local Florida girl like I am, and your mother-in-law, if you will. Yes. And um, we'll recap, hopefully sooner than next year, but otherwise I will catch you in the internet, on the internet, <laughs> in all the good places. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. All right. We're going to go right into my next segment. So I have... A lot of talents, and none of them include growing things or raising things besides my children. I can cut up a salad, but I cannot grow vegetables. I can run in the grass and enjoy the flowers, but the thought of keeping them alive for longer than one week, uh, you know, it's just not for me. It's just not for me, and I've tried. I once babysat for my grandmother's plants with a lot of enthusiasm, and they all committed suicide. That's a true story, but we'll save the details for another time. Or maybe I should just ask Ahuva, my next guest. Ahuva. Ahuva is a fascinating person because she grows her own stuff. Not only that, she has chickens and she has rabbits. Oh, by the way, all of this is in Muncie. It's not like she lives on a big ranch somewhere in the south. She lives in Muncie, where from what I understand, it's absolutely freezing right now. And she has chickens and she has rabbits and she has, I believe, eggs from the chickens. (laughs) She also makes incredible sourdough bread. I'm talking about hundreds of loaves a week. You have to hear her story because she didn't even know sourdough was a thing. And suddenly she was just the queen of sourdough. And... She plants and raises fruits and vegetables. And she has so much to teach all of us, especially now in the winter, when it is the perfect time to plan your garden. If you want a garden in the spring, you cannot plant it in the spring. You have to prepare in the winter. And she is a gardener consultant. She's not a landscaping consultant. She's a garden consultant. She will help you learn how to find your two green thumbs. And you, yes, you can wear gloves if you're queasy about bugs. And she will help you transform any space that you have into a tomato patch or a cucumber patch or whatever it is you want to grow. It's all good. So without further ado, Ahuva, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you for having me. I think you are the only woman I know today that was busy with extension cords and electrical tape trying to figure out how to heat the drinking water for, what is it, your rabbits and chickens? Yes, the rabbits and the chickens. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) My fingers are still defrosting. Is that what you wanted to know? 
Well, what's the temperature where you're at? You're in Muncie. Um, so right now, it, I think it's gone above freezing. I'm going to check my t- the temperature outside right now. So it's not that cold. It's 33 degrees. No, it went back below freezing. So you are a Jewish woman who has practically a farm uh, behind her house that you take care of regularly. You're going to tell us, you know, some specifics in a second. But you keep things alive besides for your children. Hello, I am glad if I could keep my children alive. And you want to keep chickens alive and rabbits alive and all kinds of plants alive and fruits and vegetables alive. Are there cows? Like, where does this... There are definitely no cows. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Yet. No cows. I live on about three quarters of an acre. It really isn't that big. What people who come here who just see it on Instagram first always say is, well, I thought it was much bigger because it's not. It's just a suburban Muncie backyard. Um, There are people who have bigger lots than I have. It's what I do with it. It's not the amount of space I have. But you have garlic, carrots, potatoes, cucumbers, tomatoes, beets, and that's just what I've noticed. That's a lot to grow in your Muncie backyard where most people just have a swing set. Well, right now, since the temperatures are heading towards freezing, probably another half an hour it'll be below freezing. I don't have much of anything growing outside. I do have some carrots under some protection. The gardening season is the summer, spring, summer, fall. In the winter, you're not growing anything outside here. No matter how hard you try, when the ground is frozen, you can't really grow anything. I did plant my garlic because garlic gets planted in the fall and then it overwinters underground and grows again in the spring. But really, in the winter, it's not such a busy time for the garden. It's it's a seasonal thing. I know there are people who live in warmer climates where they can garden all year round. And I just I I get exhausted thinking about it. I actually like the little bit of a break from gardening. Well, I, I could imagine it. it's a lot of hard work, and that's why I don't do it. And I'll tell you that it's not that I don't appreciate plants and animals. I would love to be surrounded by plants and animals. But anybody who is like my grandmother knows that taking care of anything that's alive involves TLC. It needs to be treated tenderly, with love, and with care, and then it will thrive. So if you are not going to pay attention to the growth around you, you're not going to have a farm. So what made you, Ahuva, interested in taking care of life and seeing it grow and enjoying the, the life outdoors, which some of us, you know, we'd rather be at the mall. So how did you get here? Well, first of all, we're going to admit that anything worth doing is hard work. What you do is hard work. People would say, I don't want to put all that time and effort into it, but it's worth it because it's a worthwhile thing. So anything that's worthwhile is going to be hard work. And this is something that I love doing and I want to do. I have enjoyed gardening and growing things since I'm a very little girl with my father. I do not remember a time where I wasn't helping him in the garden. I wanted chickens specifically since I'm 12 years old. And I, my mother basically said to me, nope, not happening, not in my house. When you grow up, if you want chickens, you can get chickens. And so I did. It took until I was 30 and we got chickens and I, I love them. I just enjoy it so much. I've always been interested since as long as I can remember in knowing where things come from and how things are made. That was always something that fascinated me. So am I, but the answer is Costco, (laughs) Publix, Walmart. (laughs) It's not a farm in my backyard. Like we used to go to these old like villages when I was a kid, and they would show you like how you grow this and how you spin wool and how you you secretly wanted to be Amish. (laughs) 
I secretly wanted to know, like I would watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as a little, little kid. And he would take you into like the crayon factory. And I was like, oh, this is how they make crayons. But how did they make the wax? Like I wanted to know, like, let's get further back in the process. You're a very grounded person. You like to get to the heart of the matter. And I, I'm imagining that when you garden, it's a very honest um, experience. You know, you can't treat animals without being able to connect them. And you can't take care of your trees and your plants if you're not aware of the cycle of the seasons and that Hashem, our creator, makes all of this grow. So tell me a little bit first about what inspires you about gardening and growing and how it uplifts you as a person. Wow, this is a very deep question. You're asking me. But the answer could be whatever you want. This is a very chill show. You could just be like... I, I, I just want a potato. <laughs> I love being connected to where my food comes from. In today's day and age, we're so disconnected. Like you said, you go to Costco, you buy a bag of potatoes. But where do those potatoes really come from? Now, I'm not going to be able to grow enough potatoes to feed my family for the whole year unless I dug up my whole yard and planted potatoes every, which I'm not going to do. I'm not a farm. That's why I call it a homestead, not a farm. That's really important to me. But by growing 10 pounds of potatoes or 15 pounds of potatoes, I'm understanding where every potato that we eat comes from because I have been intimately connected with the process and I appreciate it more. And that's also my mission in sharing all of what I do with the world is to connect people with where their food comes from. Not everyone can grow everything that they eat. I mean, I don't grow everything that I eat and not everyone can even grow that much. I really believe that everyone should grow something at least at some point because that really will connect them. But even just by watching me and what I'm doing, you're understanding the amount of work that goes into your food. And that's every everything you eat and everything we have, not even just your food. There's a whole process behind it just coming to the store and you buying it and bringing it home. Do you actually enjoy the produce and enjoy the honey and enjoy the bread when you've put the toil and sweat of your own hands into it? Is it something like just a better experience when eating it? Oh, definitely. Definitely. When you've put the work in, first of all, happens to be homegrown produce tastes better. It hasn't had to sit on the shelf for a long time. Also, you're able to grow varieties that aren't grown for storage. A lot of, especially in the United States, a lot of our produce is grown for storage and be able to That's be transported long distances. So they're not necessarily the varieties that taste the best, but the varieties that will look nicer for longer periods of time on a grocery store because it's been in a truck for two weeks before that. Um, so there's that. Um, there's also, like you said, the mental and spiritual feeling of accomplishment from growing something yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is also important. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that we completely overlook in our children's education. Your average Jewish child knows nothing about agriculture, knows nothing about farming, has never gotten their hands dirty. And it's it's secretly been a dream of mine. I have a vision of myself farming and making things grow and enjoying the process. I just never have, I never had the opportunity. I grew up in Miami Beach and we were certainly not farming in the summer weather or any time of year. And then my life kind of just married, have kids, and it just never 
I never had the opportunity. The one time I babysat from my grandmother's beautiful plants, all of them committed suicide. And I took that as a sign that maybe I should, you know, stay away from living things. <laughs> I kid you not. And I, and I tried. And I remember thinking, this is my opportunity to see if I could keep these beautiful, you know, pots and plants alive for two weeks or so. And I just, I don't know. I, I didn't know enough. So is gardening something that you could just kind of roll into or is there a learning curve? So there's a learning curve, but part of what I try to do is really reduce that learning curve by giving people clear instructions. Part of what I do is garden consultations for people. I do them in person. I also do them virtually. And I'll give people clear instructions, what you want to grow, when to plant it, how to plant it. So all of that learning curve that you would could take you 10 years to learn, you're getting the clear instructions. And when questions come up, people can ask me. And that's part of the whole process is that you ask me questions throughout the growing season. A question comes up, even with the very clear instructions I give, there's always a few questions and I'm happy to answer them. And it's really that information that used to be passed down. I mean, traditionally, way back, we were an agrarian society. That's where we, we all were farmers. True. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, we are so far from what things used to be when the, well, when that, when the Jews walked in the desert, because they got a lot of free stuff when they were uh, surrounded by the Ananiha Kavite. <laughs> but in general, the Jews, especially here in Eretz Yisrael, they tilled and toiled the land. I mean, I've read a tremendous amount about the defining years of Israel's agriculture development when the country was first established, and they describe the actual physical boulders that they used to lift for hours, the, the first settlers here, and, and it was real toil, but they kept envisioning the tree that will stand there one day and provide fruit. And here we are all these years later, and the reward is here. Israel is flourishing, and part of the beauty of planting is you're literally investing today for tomorrow. It's like such right. a deep, right? So so tell me about how that concept is part of your life as a parent or with your children. Like, how does this affect your family, or is it just mommy's hobby? I'm hanging out with the carrots right now. Leave me alone. <laughs> So I think my kids don't even realize because they're just brought up this way and they don't even realize that they know this stuff. Like they're born almost knowing that they were raised in this of where the food comes from and that it's grown and they, they understand it without even realizing that it's something different than other people. You don't go into grocery stores and they're like, oh my gosh, there's also red apples or there's, well, you don't grow apples, but you know what I mean? Like, oh, can we, can we try those baby potatoes? Or they're just like, we only eat food from the backyard. Like we definitely don't only eat food in the backyard. First of all, we've gone apple picking, even though we don't grow apples. That's like a regular family activity. When they were younger, we did a lot of it. We haven't done it as much recently. My youngest is turning 13 this week. Um, so, but they know where the food, so if I, will buy a different type type of potato. Yes, obviously I'm buying them, not growing everything, but they understand that they grow underground. Same with carrots. Sometimes we have them from outside and they definitely taste better, especially because I leave them in the ground until it gets cold. And when it gets colder, it the plant turns the starch in the sugar. It's almost like a antifreeze. Well, that's why beets are, so, beets are so sweet. Also. also get sweeter. Exactly. So I waited to pick carrots, a bunch of my carrots and beets until last week. 
when it had gotten cold already and they were so sweet. And you and love to so cook. Delicious. You make some delicious recipes, which are on yeah. your Instagram page. And we're yes. going to talk about your sourdough in a second. But first, I have a joke that I prepared because I was talking to a farmer. Can I say it? Sure. What did the mama cow say to the baby cow? What did the mama cow say to the baby cow? It's pasture bedtime. <laughs> I thought that was funny. All right. Funny. Okay, good. Uh, we could do another one. I have a couple prepared. Oh, boy. Um, let's go. But let's, have you ever thought about um, having cows and milking cows? Like, what would be your dream farm? If, you're, if your husband said tomorrow, honey, I'm buying you the biggest property of your life. We're going to buy a tractor. You're going to be sitting on that tractor, and everything's going to be la-di-da on Ahuva's farm. What would you, like, want to grow? So my dream farm when I either win the lottery or Mashiach comes is in the Golan. Um, I've oh, got you have a, a location. I love it. Yes, I have a location. I don't like heat. So the Golan is perfect. Doesn't get too hot in the summer. Nice and cold in the winter like I like. Um, beautiful scenery. I've got a brick oven outside for baking sourdough. I've got a big garden. I've got like a terraced garden because we're on a hill. Um, I've got goats. I've got sheep so I can spin the wool to make clothing. Oh, my gosh. You're making uh, calaisim. Don't ask. <laughs> I have plants. I've got beehives there too, just like I have back here. I've got, I've got, I've got the plants. Tell me the story about the bear and the beehives. That's a good story. So black bears and they live around here and we live right near Harriman state park. Um, Mostly what, people know them who live around here know them for is getting into people's garbage now they never go into our garbage because we don't have food in our garbage they're going for leftover food we save all food scraps we save peels either to feed the rabbits or put in the compost and leftover table scraps go to the chickens so our garbage is not interesting to them however we have beehives and bears like honey as you know if you've ever read winnie the pooh but they like bees they like baby bees. Bee larva. They, it's delicious. Ba- one second. Baby bees are not flying around buzzing and stinging? Correct. They're bee they're, larva. I mean, there's, uh, they're, they're working. They're like, they're what them. caviar is to fish eggs? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so they so they eat the little baby bees, the bears, but the bears are huge. How much could they get out of a, a honeycomb? They eat. They, they just destroy them. And they don't just oh go in and eat. They eat make destruction, mass destruction to the hive. And basically then the hive is destroyed. So we have an electric fence around our beehives to keep the bears from getting to them. But we did not realize basically as the summer goes on, the sun is not, is at a different angle in the sky. And then, but there are also still leaves on the tree. So the solar panel that controls, that keeps electrifies the electric fence was not working properly. So the battery was not fully charged and for all the means- animal activists listening, I'm assuming it's a small zap that keeps the bear away and it doesn't actually fry the bear. It does not fry the bear. I, okay. <laughs> the way we test it is by touching it. You're not supposed to. Don't do this, people. But that's okay. the way we test it. It gives you a zap. You know it's working. The bear will come up to the electric fence, put its nose on it. Its nose is a very sensitive part and get a little zap and like, let's wander somewhere else. This is not worth it. Got so it. it just, but it wasn't working. And right. The so, so you saw the bear? Or you didn't hear the bear? You woke up to the bear? Like, where it's was the, the bear? middle of the night. We're about to go to sleep and we hear a noise outside and we look out the window and we see a bear had gotten into the fence because it wasn't electrified properly and grabbed one of the hives and ran off. But what about the bees? Doesn't it get stung? Um, I guess it's worth it. Right. Or it has this thick fur. Maybe the bees, you know, till they they reach it. They tried, um, but, you know, there, and we went out and we tried to scare it away with noise. We threw things and it just, we heard it munching. 
in the woods. I'm laughing. I'm just laughing. If my father saw a bear in the backyard, he would literally <laughs> he would run for the hills. And you guys are like, let's go chase the bear. Like, seriously, like get out of our honey. We tried. Then we connected the um, battery for the electric fence to an extension cord to keep to protect the other hive that the bear hadn't gotten to. But that hive, unfortunately, was a loss. And we're talking hundreds of dollars because the hive, the frames, the bees, everything is going to need to be replaced. At this point, we're not going to replace it until the spring. But that's part of the reason I sell honey, in order to cover the expenses of taking care of the bees. We're not actually the beekeepers. I have a beekeeper who's a friend of ours who comes to do the actual work on the hives. But I sell the honey from the hives that he extracts. Um, just we It's not a moneymaker for us. It's totally just to offset the cost of keeping the bees. And the reason I started keeping the bees to begin with has to do with my garden. Because certain things like squash and cucumbers need bees to pollination. pollinate the flowers. Yeah, love it. And I was noticing less and less bees every year. And I wasn't getting good cucumbers or good squash. So when someone else, wasn't even this guy, it was this guy's teacher, asked for places to put hives. I was like, me, 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 me. <laughs> that was <laughs> I'll take a time. beehive in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. So, it, But you don't just sell honey. You, actu- you actually sell sourdough. So please explain to me, because I try to avoid the kitchen at all costs. Please explain to me what the deal is with sourdough, why people are so obsessed with it. We get spelled sourdough in our Israel bakery every Shabbos, and it's just so, so delicious. So don't get me wrong. I get that it's yummy. But when did this like sourdough phenomena start that like it's on Instagram and everybody's trying it and you're selling it? Like talk sourdough to me. Well, first of all, on my website, we're talking about what I sell. I sell honey. I sell sourdough. And I also sell, I have my garden consultations and backyard chicken consultations all up there. It's a product, I guess, a service that I offer. But all those things are available on my website. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And so sourdough, it's all back to the same thing about how I love to know where things come from and how things are made. And I always wanted to know how was bread really made? Because commercial yeast, it's a new thing. I mean, it's less than 200 years old, like 150 years old. So how was bread made before that? And the answer is that all bread was sourdough. And I knew this, and I knew that all bread was made from wild yeast, but I didn't know how to make it. You're talking to someone, I don't even know what sourdough means. Okay, so all bread always was made with wild yeast. What's wild yeast? Basically, you save a piece of your old dough from your last batch of bread, and you Add it to your new batch of bread. And even before people understood what microorganisms were and yeast were. Right. It has microorganisms. Okay, it has got it. the yeast. It Bac- has the right. wild yeast and bacteria in there. And it makes your new dough rise. So as a baker, you would save your a piece of dough from that batch for the next dough. But that was how bread was made for thousands of years. Right. Because you, know, you didn't buy a package of the yellow uh, vacuum-packed yeast, there was no such thing. Got it. So when people say sourdough is this new bread, I laugh because sourdough is the oldest bread. All bread was sourdough. That's what bread was. Sometimes when I was growing was- up, nobody was eating sourdough. We were eating white bread. Right. So that's, but that's like a modern, that's a modern invention. We're talking 150 years ago. I know. Where- so what happened now that sourdough's back on the menu? So what happened with me is about let's see how many years, 19 years ago, I got into, I really wanted to know where bread come from and came from and how bread is made. And I actually watched an episode of Baking with Julia, with Julia Child. And she had Nancy Silverton on, who's a famous chef from California. And she was talking about sourdough. And I was like, this sounds fascinating. I want to try to make it. 
So I tried and my first attempts were terrible. There weren't all the online resources there are today. There was one chapter in one book and I followed it for months and months. And I finally made a bread that tasted so good. I had never tasted a bread like that. It was nothing like anything I'd ever tasted. So I kept making it. At some point, it became popular in the rest of the world. And I had no idea. What? That's a I riot. I had no idea. I kept making That's it. That's a riot. I had riot. no idea it became a thing. I'm not even sure how it became a thing. I think it became a thing through like the back to where, you know, back to the roots, farmer's market type of movement of food. But I, I missed that. And I joined Instagram in 2017. I started, started showing my sourdough. People were like, wow, this is so cool. I was like, what are you talking about? This weird bread that I've been making forever? Like, everyone's like, what? What is this? But your sourdough is perfect. And you don't, you I know. I had no idea that it I think Malky from the Comic Cook makes sourdough bread. A lot of people do it. A now. lot of people it do. super popular. And I I'm, don't. <laughs> I, I can assure it. you. I missed it. I have been doing it for such a long a, time. So such I started a great showing story. It. Yeah, people were like, do you sell this? And I was like, well, um, no, I just make this for my family, but... I saw there was a demand for it, and I really knew what I was doing at that point because I had been doing it for over a decade. Uh, so, but I knew I didn't know how to make it on a commercial scale. That's something very different. How many do you make at a time now? Like sixty? Now, I, my my max is twelve dozen, one hundred and forty-four. Wow! And those are full size sourdough that are each one is delicious, crunchy, yeah. handmade with love. I don't do that every week right now. I used to for a while. I was doing every week 144 and wearing myself down physically to the point that I felt like I was falling apart. So you have that huge mixer. Like you have a commercial, have a you have a mixer, commercial kitchen. I have big ovens. I have a big space. I have a separate space, a bakery that I do this in. It's in my house. It's a set, it's a whole separate area. Um, but it's just, it's a very exhausting to make 144 loaves. It takes me two days. Um, now I do about a hundred a week and it's, it's much more manageable. You would think like, what's the difference? Once you're making 100, you might as well make 144. Believe me, there's a difference. The difference between being exhausted and feeling like I'm falling apart. It's anyway, very back to important, the story. Yeah. It's important, important to know your limits. Yeah. Yes, exactly. When I wanted to bake commercially uh, on a larger scale, I knew that I needed to learn that part of the business, not just how to make good sourdough. And someone connected me with David Katz. I don't know if you know them. They used to run Pop Bamelach. They actually sold that now. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, every single Purim, my sister-in-law from Boston sends me Mishloch Manot from Pat B'Malach, and they prepare the most beautiful baskets, and I get my little sourdough bread and these beautiful dips in these glass jars, and it's packaged beautifully, and it's like every year for the last five years. So, yes. They're doing something else now, something like similar, different, but not the bakery. Um, but I went, we came to Israel. That was the last time I was in Israel. And in 2018, I think it was, I hope I'm getting my time, my, my timeline, right. And I spent a day in the bakery there, basically as an apprentice, learning how to bake sourdough on a much larger scale. And he sat down with me and talked to me about the math and the timing and all the things that are important to make it work. And then I went home and that's when I started doing it. And it grew. I started in my own kitchen now. And then I was at the point where I needed to decide, am I going to open a commercial storefront bakery or do it in my own house? I'm happy I stayed small because if I had opened a larger bakery, then I wouldn't be able to say, I know my limits. I need to cut back on this and I'll do something else. I would be stuck with overhead. I don't have overhead. So when I needed to cut back on my baking and I started doing much more in the garden consultations, I also do social media and content creation. Um, I don't have to worry about that. I'm paying rent somewhere because it's in my house. Who's buying the bread? People who are in my local area, people in the Muncie area. Do you ship? 
I do not ship bread. I will never ship bread. Oh, I don't okay. I was going to say, because bread bread has to be eaten fresh. That's it. I don't believe that it's a product that it's worthwhile to ship. And there are mm-hmm. plenty of good local bakers in other areas. Totally. Um, okay. So let me ask you, for the average Jewish woman who's interested, or Jewish man who's interested in dipping their green toe into growing things, into per- perhaps having a home garden, growing a cucumber or tomato or so. Is this feasible for people who live all over the world? Is it something that you need a specific uh, landscape for? Can you give some people tips um, how they can get started? Or should some people be realistic about what they can and cannot do as far as being a farmer in in the city? As long as you have an area with sun, and sun is the most important, it can even be a balcony, you can grow something. Everybody can grow something. I mean, there are people who live in apartments with no outdoor access, no balcony, no anything. And that's really, that's tough. But anybody else can grow something. You don't have to start large. I did not start on a large scale either myself. When, you know, when I was at home, you know, when I was at home, my parents' home, um, I helped my father in his garden. But when I got married and we had a few planters and then we grew it from there and got bigger and bigger. And you don't have to ever get big if you don't want to. You can grow two cucumber plants and a tomato plant. The important thing to do is to get really good information and advice. That's part of the reason I started doing garden consultations. I was actually doing it for free for a long time, spending hours and hours advising my friends and neighbors on their gardening. And I realized, you know, like maybe this is my expertise. I can actually charge for this. And I started like making it much more organized and I have a special email that I send out with instructions. As long as you have good information, then you can do it. A lot of people will look online and they'll get a lot of conflicting information from different places and get very overwhelmed and think that it's really overwhelming and really difficult. And how are they going to do this? But really, it can be simplified down and you can start small. Can it's you go to Home Depot and just buy a couple of plants and go from there and like follow the instructions on the packets? I wouldn't recommend it. I would recommend like oh. really getting someone with experience to guide you um, in doing it and not just because that's the way that people feel like they're failures and they don't have a green thumb. They go to Home Depot, they buy a planter, they buy some potting mix and they buy a plant and then it doesn't do anything. They're like, see, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't garden. And that's because they weren't doing it right. They really didn't have the proper guidance and information. I feel that it's really worth it to start out with that. Do you think that people are missing out if they don't ever have the experience of growing something themselves? I feel they're missing out if they don't have the experience of growing something successfully. The people who have tried without proper like advice and experience and spent hours and hours and for nothing, um, yeah, don't do that. If you can, if you can get the right guidance and experience, it's worth it. It's definitely worth it, and you're missing out if you are. Th- are those gardening books behind you? Those are a lot of different types of books behind me. Uh, let's see. We've got gardening books. We've got back barnyard in your backyard about having animals in your backyard. We've got um, books about food science. A lot of those. I also do a lot of recipe development and cooking. Got some sourdough books. Got some cookbooks that don't fit in my kitchen. I've got two cookbook cabinets in my kitchen full. Got books about growing saffron. I don't know. I've got a lot of books here. Amazing, 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 amazing. Wow, you are one knowledgeable lady. So you don't know why my grandmother's plants committed suicide. Um, well, let's talk about them. What type of plants were they? So they were probably from like Costco. I mean, honestly, or Home Depot. But my grandmother, she had a green thumb and she would keep them alive year after year after year. She had plants outside and she lived in Crown Heights. She had okay. the most beautiful flower bed in Brooklyn. 
Her front lawn was magnificent, and she took care of the the plants, and she had a beautiful eye for color and landscaping, and they thrived. And when Did she I tell you what to do, the, like how often to water them, etc., or you she just probably to told me to water them a little bit in the morning and a little bit in the evening. How little bit? I don't know. You may um, have drowned them, basically. Is that what I, you're saying? I think a lot of the leaves turned yellow, which means that you overwatered. It could be overwater or underwater. It means that the plant is not getting proper nutrients. If you were watering them and they still turn yellow, you were probably overwatering. Overwatering, by the way, is one of the biggest mistakes people make. Right. So that's that's probably the case. And also, uh, listen, you you learn the cycle of the plant. You learn what what it's supposed to look like, what it's not supposed to look like, the way the sun is hitting it, the temperature in the room. These are all things that you take in consideration. The same way you take those things into consideration when you're raising anything. Stick your finger in the dirt is what I always tell people. If it feels dry, water it. If it doesn't, don't water it. That would have been a great instruction to give you and you probably wouldn't have killed the plants. Then That like, makes oh, perfect sense. <laughs> that it's makes perfect really sense. It's really not that hard. But it takes, it took me years of experience to be able to give that instruction. Stick your finger down three inches. If it feels dry, it needs water. If it doesn't, Leave it alone. Right. I mean, whatever. If it feels dry, it needs water. If it if it feels wet, leave it alone. Don't overwater it. Because if you're overwatering it, basically what's happening when you overwater is you're washing away the nutrients that the plant needs in order to live. That's a very good explanation. That makes perfect sense. You're not showing it love by flooding the nutrients away from the, the plant. Yeah, it's like, like you, you want to hug your child. You love your child. but You don't want to smother them. them. <laughs> you're going to literally smother them. <laughs> exactly. ah, that's great. Well, what about people What about people who are like queasy about bugs and queasy about animals? Like animals and nature go hand in hand. People use manure in, in, in soil and there's, there's a whole ecosystem that thrives and works together with the plants and provide, and also obviously you want to keep certain animals away from your plants. So for people who are a little like uncomfortable with living creatures that actually creep and crawl, what do you say to that? Is gardening like not a good idea for them? Gloves. Just wear gloves when you garden so you don't have to worry about accidentally touching a bug. You don't have to deal with manure that looks like it came straight from an animal. You can buy bagged compost from Home Depot and use that too. For keeping animals out, you need a fence. I always say that people who live in cities think that they're at a disadvantage when it comes to gardening, even if they have a sunny area, but they're not because they don't have to worry about the same animal predators as you do in the suburbs. In the suburbs, you might have more space and more options of what you can grow, but you can have to build a fence and there's no two ways about it. And right, I because have, if there's something yummy to eat, an animal will come eat it. Right. And if you don't build a proper fence, then the animals will get in anyways. That's one of the things I do. Talk to people about the type of fence that they want to build and how to do it. I have multiple types. Sometimes I'll come in and there'll be a fence already and I'll give instructions on how to make it like, say, I have a fence, but the animals are getting in. So make it higher, put the wire down on the ground to keep digging animals from getting underneath. Tell me before you go, maybe two or three stories of something that went terribly wrong. Because I feel like whatever you do, there are times when things go terribly wrong. I'm a musician. Sometimes I just really destroy an entire project by by coming at it the wrong way. And I have to start from scratch or forgetting to save something or just having negative experiences. So does planting and growing and having chickens and all that stuff, does it ever have like experiences that you want to cry yourself to sleep? So when we first moved in over here, where we live now, we didn't have the money to build a fence. I didn't have the time. We just moved in. So that first year, we grew plants up on our deck, which figured the animals won't be able to get to them. 
Yeah, they found them. The groundhogs managed to get up the stairs and squeeze under the gate. And the reason we knew this is we have security cameras and we like rewound the footage and sat there for an hour watching it on like fast forward to watch the groundhogs come up and climb and eat the. And when groundhogs will eat your plant, they don't just like, I'll borrow a cherry tomato. They'll eat the plants down to the ground and then the plants are gone. There's no more plant. Wow. Um, so <laughs> they're yeah. hogs. <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was it. That was when I said it's time to build the fence here. Um, so that was so very that, disappointing. It was extremely disappointing because I put a lot of hard work. It was I was growing in planters, but I had a whole bunch of planters. I put a lot of work into planting them and making sure they were in the sunniest part of my deck and watering them. And then in a few hours, I had no more plants. Have you ever made like a, just an idiotic mistake that you realize afterwards like costs you a lot of time, energy, or money? I do a lot of research. Uh, I, I try not to do that. I made, I guess you could call it a mistake, but I knew that it was a mistake when I was doing it and I did it anyway. This year I planted peas and beans. I knew it was too late. I knew I probably wouldn't get them, but I had the seeds. And one of the benefits of growing peas and beans, which are a type of legumes, is that they fix nitrogen from the air into the soil. So they really, just by planting them, even if they just die after a few weeks, they really benefit the soil. And I, I had just grown garlic in that bed and I really wanted to improve the soil there. So I was like, I'll grow peas, I'll grow beans. It got too cold just in time. I literally just got flowers on my peas and peas can handle cold and frost, no problem. But once your nights are going down to 25 degrees, they freeze those plants and they're gone. I would have like another, if I had planted them two weeks earlier, I would have had tons of peas. Oh, wow. But I knew okay, you I, live I, and you learn. You live yeah, and you learn. When I knew it already. I learned, I knew when I was planting and I told people, don't do this. If you live in my area, you can't plant this now. It's too late. This was basically like I was giving a teaching moment and showing people I feel so warm. And now in August, it was in August, it was boiling hot outside. It was 90 deg 99 degrees or whatever it was that day. But I knew based on the amount of days left until when it would get cold that there was, even if it feels hot, and people all the time, I get in September and September, a whole bunch of people were like, what can I plant now? And I'm like, nothing, but it's <laughs> so hot out. But it takes time. There is nothing you can plant. There are no it. miracles in gardening. Is everything really just say there order? Yeah. Yes and no. So there's order and there's knowing when to plant things the right time. And then there's some years are just not good years for tomatoes. And some years are just not good years for cucumbers. It really is. I mean, they're in different places and different depends where you live. Like I do garden consultations all over. I did a garden, garden consultation recently for someone in Atlanta, which has a totally different growing season than mine. They have a much longer growing season. Um, you were saying you can't grow things in Miami, but you can. You can grow a lot of nice things in the winter, carrots and potatoes, all kinds of garlic in the winter. And you can even grow things that are more tropical, like tomatoes and peppers in the summer. You just have to actually, this is the opposite of what I was saying about the sunniest place. You have to give them some shade because the heat of the day can fry the plants. Um, but if you give them some shade and you make sure they have proper water, you can probably get much better peppers than I can get up here where it's cold. Right, right, right. So uh, you learn you learn about your environment and you learn about the seasons and you learn about the plants and you learn about yourself, it sounds like. It sounds like you know a lot about yourself because you have to give a big part of your energy, your patience, your time to all these things that are growing around you. So, And I love me, learning and I love researching. That's why I have a shelf full of books over here. So I can do the research for people also. Like the, I had never gardened in Atlanta, but I did tons of research. That garden consultation took me 10 times the amount of time that one locally, because I know already my own area did, but now I know, and now I can help anyone else also. And, and you can do it I, over the phone, right? 
I do them over WhatsApp, actually. It's even better than the phone because we can save the messages and the voice notes and they can refer back to them later. Amazing. And then I send an email afterwards with all the information, clearly exactly what they need to do step by step. I basically say it's a personalized gardening for dummies book just for you well i bless you that you should be able to come to israel and have your farm on the galil and it should be everything you dreamed of and you will go with me to one of these big flower store tree places by the way in israel they sell olive trees you can buy an olive tree you can buy mango trees i so awesome the clementines and pomegranates i have seen pomegranate plants on my block for five years in a row go from no leaves to full hanging fruit in a cycle of so six cool. months. It's mind-blowing. So cool. It is mind-blowing. Pomegranates, by the way, are gorgeous. They're gorgeous flowers. And then the way they, they just bloom into this big, juicy fruit, it's really mind-blowing. And yeah, here in Israel, we just had Shemitah, so that was an experience for my children. We talked about the land, and we connected to the land, and we understood that you have to respect the... You have to respect the land because when you respect the land, it will respect you back and it will reap fruit and you will bear fruit. So I just want to bless you. You should be able to come to Israel and go with me and buy an olive tree and we'll plant an olive tree on my porch. And <laughs> amen, amen. I'm like counting. I'm literally, Mashiach comes tomorrow. That's it. I'm grabbing my garden books and getting on a plane. Uh, but no sour. I don't know if we're ready for sourdough. Let's just do one thing at a time. But I will buy your sourdough made here in Israel. I'm happy. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm probably going to be the only one up there on my hilltop in the Golan baking sourdough. So, <laughs> I'll hang out with you. All right, there you have it. Episode 61 of the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for your feedback. Don't forget to check out my show notes. There's a link there so you can donate $18, $36 to Mayor Panim on behalf of the Weekly Squeeze. If you're loving the show, stay safe wherever you are. Stay warm if it's already snowing in your neck of the woods. And most importantly, stay happy. I will see you on Thursday.